This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time, writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read, and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning a winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh-huh, it's comic book commentary. This is the comic book commentary for Coyotes Volume 2. My name is Sean Lewis. I am the writer and co-creator along with Caitlin Yarsky, who is the artist as well as the letterer and the colorist. I want to say thank you to Ben Blacker for inviting me to do this and Forever Dog. I've been sick all week, so I am doing this remotely. I literally am talking to you while I have a comforter over my head, making sure that I have a soundproof microphone for you. A little trick from the Welcome to Nightville guys. So, Coyotes Volume 2. Now... First, it's probably important to talk about how you put together an artistic team for an independent book like Coyotes. We're published by Image Comics, which means that your book doesn't even go out until you have three full issues done. That means completely done, lettering, art, everything. And in my experience, you don't even get the green light to have your book published at all until you've turned in a full issue to Eric Stevenson, who's the editor-in-chief. And he looks over it and decides if he wants to publish it or not. Uh, It is basically that simple and that hard at the same time. Um, Eric's been amazing. I think he's the smartest person I've ever met. So his taste and um, his belief in me has been great. It also means that I've had to find artists. How do you do that? I imagine a lot of people listening to this, that's one of their big questions if what they want to do is make comic books. So... There is a Facebook site called Boom Studios Artist Submissions. It is for Boom Studios. I do not know if they are aware that people like myself troll that site on a regular basis. And um, basically in the comments section, people will post their portfolios. They'll put their art up and you can kind of just scroll through and see whose art jumps out at you. Who do you think is doing something really interesting? So Caitlin's art is one of the things I found. And I was blown away by it right away. It didn't look like anything that I had seen before. Her eyes um, of the characters are incredibly expressive. There's a real fluidity of motion. Um, You know, there's just an amazing liveliness to the characters. So I then go and I find Caitlin's Facebook page. And I send her a message and I say, here is the script for the first issue of something I'm calling Coyotes. I think you would be an amazing artist for it. Let me know what you think. Um, She got back to me very quick, told me that she really liked it, and we went off from there. We started making the book. I think it's also important for a lot of you listening to also know Coyotes was rejected the first time that we submitted it to Image. We sent it in. Um, At that point, I had the few was about to come out with Image Comics. Um, It's a book I do with Hayden Sherman. And Eric, um, he looked at it. He said, it's kind of cool, kind of interested in it. Um, I just don't think it's fully there yet. And so Caitlin and I went back to the drawing board 
And basically, Caitlin's amazing. So Caitlin was just like, I've learned so much more about art in the period in time from the book that we submitted to now. Give me another shot at redrawing the entire comic book. And so she did. And the book that she ended up drawing is the one that you ended up buying at the stores. It's also the one that Eric then signed off on. So over the course of about a year, 18 months from when we started to when it got published, uh, Coyotes comes out. So we do the first arc, and that was heavily plotted and was a lot more, um, you know, led by me because I had been the, the main driving force of the story arc at that point. But through a period in time, you know, me and Caitlin, we did some signing tours. We were spending a lot of time, you know, going from city to city, kind of meeting fans and getting to know each other. I mean, it's one of the weirdest things about comic books is that, like, you're not in the same place as you're working on stuff. So it's so strange the type of relationship you create. Like, you're making this very intimate thing. Like, you're, you're like, birthing something, but you're, like hundreds or thousands of miles away so you get to kind of know each other and not at the same time as we did the signing tours we started talking about a second arc and i think we were taking a bus down to washington dc and we were like okay what do we what do we want to explore in this next four issues and both of us were just noticing and talking a lot about how angry we felt everybody was and Maybe we could address that. Like, how, how do you deal with people you hate or people you disagree with or people you find, you know, repulsive or, or reprehensible? Because we all kind of are stuck in this world together. And then I told Caitlin a story about something I came across uh, working on theater projects. So my day job for the past couple of years until recently um, has been as an artistic director of theaters. And I travel around the country and sometimes I go overseas and I had the opportunity to go to Rwanda and I was working with genocide survivors and they would tell me about life post-genocide in Rwanda. So anyone who doesn't know, um, the primary conflict was between two warring tribes, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Um, The Tutsis rule the country, although they're a minority. The Hutus are the majority, and the Hutus enacted a genocide on the Tutsis. This is what happened in 1994. And at the end of it, so many people were killed and so many people left the country that President Kugami, who is a Tutsi and who came in and basically saved the country, said, look, we will allow Hutus to come back to the country from neighboring places, and we will promise not to execute them. But we will enact this thing called Gachacha, which is a tribal court from the olden days. And we'll let that be how you are dealt with. Basically because they knew if they were going to continue the country, they needed people to help. They needed people to live there. So the way Gachacha works is the entire village will gather out on a field. And once there, the person who's committed a crime will admit what they did to everybody. And they'll just say, you know, I... I murdered somebody or I helped find this person who was running away or anything else. And then the elders will decide a punishment for them. Basic theme being forgiveness. So I asked Caitlin what she thought if we use some elements of this. Maybe there would be a second tribe, someone outside of Red and the Victorias who we meet in the first book. And they'll be led by a woman who does not believe that they should kill these men that are enacting all of this violence upon them, but instead that they'll spare them, sometimes imprison them, but basically re-educate and retrain them. 
It's a concept dealing with the balances between can you deal with something like toxic masculinity with zero tolerance or do you have to completely, you know, re-educate a generation? Personally, I mean, it's a very tricky dialogue. Um, I think that, you know, if something is a culture, if you say that, like, the culture is itself misogynistic, then you do have to re-educate a culture. I mean, that's what that basically means is that it will be ingrained in people to have those qualities. So how do you do that? And then on the flip side of it, you have people like the Duchess who are just zero tolerant and are like, no, you don't have to re-educate anyone. People just need to be better. And so it puts those kind of warring dialectics against each other. You know, fun stuff. It's a fun book. It is actually a fun book. There's also monsters in it. Go buy it. Um, (laughs) So that gets us to the nitty gritty. Like, how do Caitlin and I make a book? We had our themes, and that's how we basically start. What do we want to go about intellectually? And then it becomes just like endless Twitter messages between each other. Um, Basically, when I put my son down to bed at night, I sit in the room with him and I spend most of that time just tweeting back and forth on direct messages to Caitlin and it's us just going, okay, maybe what will happen is they're riding the big train from the end of the first arc and they're trying to pick up um, other women to bring back to this new fortress they've built. And as they get to the fortress, um, maybe they find out that there's a second group of women and they're keeping men there and they're very confused by this, the Victorias, and so they challenge this new woman, Olive, about what she's doing and it brings up conflict and, of course, in the background are the wolves and blah, 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 blah. It's just us kind of riffing back and forth to each other. So then I will go and I will start to um, basically write the first issue. Now, while I'm writing, Caitlin is doing designs and she's also often just sending me like short messages or ideas where she'll be like, what if the wolves bubble? Um, or you have a firewolf that you wrote. Can I make him completely made out of lava? (laughs) Again, comic books are like the greatest job ever. When you get a message, it's like, can I make your wolf out of lava? It's, it's a good day. Like it's hard for that not to be a good day. Um, and then we start talking a little bit about design as I go through it. So Caitlin started basically focusing on Olive, who was the newest character to the group. So in the first arc, we had these characters called Victoria's who basically were in the Queen Victoria train station and so took Queen Victoria and her clothing as kind of um, a benchmark for them. So they had this kind of mix of Victorian England meets like 70s, 80s punk. It was basically like a mashup of Victorian clothes with Tank Girl. And we really loved that. So we started talking about like, okay, who's Olive? Um, and we were like, there's a little bit of goth in her. There's a little bit of samurai and there's um, a little bit of swashbuckler, which all of that sounds like insane. Again, like Caitlin is great because I can say those three things to her and you get this character who's like, who looks incredibly smart, has red hair tied up in like a cool ass bandana um, and and does. She's, she kind of looks a little like she could be Errol Flynn if Errol Flynn was like uh, female. <laughs> So I'm getting the designs in, which then also helps inspire my own writing. And I start um, getting deeper and deeper into the issue. Now, the way that I write issues with Caitlin is different than how I will do them with other people. So there's a lot of different methods. Um, If you are an aspiring comic book writer, I'm sure you know about the the plot method, like the Marvel method, panel by panel. 
Uh, we kind of break all of those because there's not like a definitive page count for image comics that you can kind of decide how many pages you need. Although you should pick less pages than we do if you want to make money on them. I'll just write a short story for the most part with um, some shot suggestions. So it's a little bit between a short story and a screenplay. A lot less visuals than just straight up text and world building and dialogue. And I'll send that on to Caitlin. We'll go back to sending text messages as we need. She'll send some sketches. We'll talk about the sketches. We'll see if we agree on the panel breakdown. And then we go forward. It basically gives her a lot of freedom um, and a lot of ownership within the book as well. And the product that we get out of it is fantastic. So it's just, it's worked for us. I think a lot of people talk about the way that you're supposed to make anything. And I'm always skeptical when people talk about like, this is how you make art. This is how you make a comic or a movie or a story. Like you do it the way that makes the thing as good as possible. And I don't think it's ever the same with, especially in a collaboration. I think collaborators kind of define their own, you know, um, they kind of define their, their own limitations and they, they define their own um, strengths and weaknesses and, and the way that they're going to make a thing. And this is what's worked for us. So in the first arc, we were able to get a driving motion. And, you know, there's exposition you hint at and then there's the stuff that's necessary to that story arc. In the second arc, we realized, okay, we want to start this issue, issue five, with basically like a deeper dive into the mythology of the Abuelas, who are these grandmother characters who are like earth goddesses, as well as the wolves and what connection there are between both. So if you look at the beginning of issue five, or much more uh, sexily, the beginning of volume two of Coyotes, Sean Lewis, Caitlin Yarsky, released today, um, you'll see that there's a train, very first panel, and that just brings us back to where we were at the end of issue four. Um, Caitlin's put it on this big skyline. We had talked about like them moving through different locales. So they were going to move to a place that had more vegetation, more water, get us away from the desert of issue four. Just give us like a truly new start in a ton of different ways. And then you get Abuela just telling the story, the myth of the Abuelas, the grandmothers, and their lifelong battle with the wolves. So when we talked about this, I just, I knew I wanted Abuela to have like, I needed to make her endearing. We killed off this character named Eyepatch at the end of issue four, who a lot of the audience like really loved. And it was Red's best friend. She dies. It's very upsetting. And then Red is passed over to Abuela, who's been kind of cranky. I've always liked like Walter Matthau. So Abuela becomes kind of my Walter Matthau. <laughs> so I always think of him like smoking cigarettes or cigars, actually, and wearing his funny hat, just kind of grumpily saying things. And so we started talking about that, and I knew that I wanted the story to come out of this smoke, that she's smoking a cigar, she blows out the smoke, and the smoke becomes um, alive, it becomes characters, and it just kind of envelops and performs in front of Red, kind of like a play. My, I think the theater background coming into play there. Um, so we worked with directions, you know, north, east, south, west, and we figured Within the mythology, if there was a wolf that Gaia, the goddess, had pushed to the different poles when she originally defeated them a millennium ago, that then there would be four different types of grandmothers that would be holding them at bay, and that those grandmothers were getting weak, which made people like Red a necessity. 
because the wolves would get back together. So that's where you get around page three or four. The um, we get the introduction of the mountain grannies, the water grannies, the desert grannies. And the thing was to make it clear the kind of eternal battle that had been happening between men and women, the wolves and the grannies in this world. I also we talked about it being really beautiful. That Gaia needed a real like a voluptuousness. Uh, um, we wanted her to look like a real person, but but beautiful, like within her physicality. And so you get these beautiful like three panels and then the introduction of the wolves. And this is where Caitlin had asked, like, there's a fire wolf. Like, can I make him made out of lava? Um, there's also a war wolf that she gave this amazing armor to and her decisions on that are great. And, and the introduction of the wolves was just to show how close the grannies had come at a point to killing the wolves themselves and what it means to hold off. Um, so you get that and then you move into basically the, the stakes, what what she's fighting for. And then we reintroduce the doll of her sister. Um, she, she's holding it tight to her chest and uh, on one of the last pages with the grannies before the story is all over. The whole first arc was primarily about her sister Maria disappearing and her trying to find her. So we reintroduce that concept with that. And so you get all of this and um, you then start to move into them hearing a noise. And we knew we needed another shift. So we knew we were starting with the desert that we wanted to, again, visually shift locales. This was also a request from Caitlin. And so the color shift. Um, we move into a man in a pink jumpsuit being dragged, chased by two women, and then captured and dragged back to a tribunal of women waiting for him. And he's, he's wearing this pink jumpsuit, which comes from the Gachacha trials that I talked to you guys about. We've become such good friends. Um, in the Gachacha trials, there are sentences more often than not where, um, basically like felons, like people who've committed egregious crimes are made to wear a pink jumpsuit. It's very strange. You will be out at a market in, um, in Rwanda in like a rural area and you will see a grown man wearing a top to bottom pink outfit. And I remember the first time I saw it, I, I thought it was a fashion choice and I asked someone I was with about it and they looked at me and they just said, no, he killed somebody which is a shocking thing to hear. Um, kind of like their own scarlet letter that they're wearing. So you've got this man and he's not taking responsibility for any of the actions that he's done. And there's this speech um, that Olive gets into that I really like where she just starts saying, uh, you protest, but that's just your shame. Everyone has shame. Everyone wants to be thought well of. Everyone makes mistakes and shame lets them not be forgiven. It lets them not change not take responsibility. We're so scared of changing, of not being accepted, not being forgiven, that shame makes us desperate, which is something I think I wrestle with and think about a lot. I'm a uh, sometimes more or less lapsed Catholic, um, so guilt and shame are pretty present in my daily life, uh, no matter what I do about it. Um, I think a lot about my failings, and I spend a lot of the time... Um, you know, thinking about people I've wronged or not, or assuming that I have, it's fun. It's fun. We should, we should all get coffee and pancakes sometime. I'll really entertain you. Um, but that idea I think is very real. The idea that, um, a, a fear of being forgiven, a fear of people seeing us for who we are, flaws and all creates a shame that doesn't allow us to ask for forgiveness, that doesn't allow us to ask ourselves to even be better, which at the very least you would hope you would do. So 
Olive presents that, and then we see that there's a group of men who are dressed like this. Uh, and then Olive, you know, she she lets us know that we're in Elios, um, that that that's the goddess of mercy, and um, and I, I like her line where she says, "And I'm her fucking hammer." <laughs> I really like I really like Olive a lot. Who was named for olive oil from the Popeye cartoons? As ridiculous as that is, um, but it's true. I think it's funny how like things we were obsessed with as kids can kind of pop up and stick around with us. I think that's the thing about writing that I still really love the most is just how much, how many of the choices are just kind of this amalgam of our subconscious. Um, Things from when I was a kid, things from when I was in Africa, things from in the news, just all becoming this like dreamlike stew, which, which coyotes very much is for me. So then, um, the, the, there's this kind of Grecian, um, ceremony that she does with the fire. Um, and this follows the Chacha a bit. She starts asking, what did you do? He starts to admit it. And Caitlin's done an amazing thing with the paneling here where she's got him in these like almost kind of Christian looking arcs. Um, and he finally admits, he admits what he did and he is pulled away. And then another man is brought forward. And at that moment, we get um, him admitting that he killed a woman named Maria. Now, Maria, this is again a callback to Red's sister, who was kind of the focus of the first arc of the book. And so Red comes flying out of nowhere, and she's caught with a karate kick from Olive, who knocks her down. And then basically, instead of being angry, just says, we don't do that here. Uh, and this is a couple of different things. Like one, we've had a lot of exposition. We've had a lot of text, right? Between the, um, the re kind of formatting the, the re, um, basically the myth of, of all of the women that the Abuela goes through. And then this whole concept of the rituals and the women of Elios, we, we've had just like, it's been a little bit slower. So I need a little bit of action. And so a karate kick does that. A karate kick gives me action. <laughs> it's kind of a, a rule. I don't know where I learned that at some point was that um, someone had taught me at one point, if you wanted to get through exposition, um, having it happen in action scenes or scenes where there's sex are really good ways of uh, getting people to pay attention to the exposition and not notice that it's exposition. <laughs> and then we have Abuela show up and she disagrees with um, Olive. And this is mainly just to set up the points and the arguments that I'm interested in for this arc is that you have men who want to be better and don't know how to. You have men who don't know how to be better, um, who don't want to take on their blame, but are going to be forced to. And then you have women who are at a divide, some who think this kind of like rehabilitation is stupid. And you have some who think that this rehabilitation is completely necessary and the next exchange just kind of demonstrates this even further. You have uh, Red starts off by saying, you just let these monsters live here? And Olive responds, well, it's how our elders did justice. The community decided. And the community took responsibility for them. It was either that or kill them. I mean, that's a complete callback to what I had heard and seen in Rwanda. And then Abuela responds, well, it sounds like someone's got to stop being a pussy. Basically, it is that three-pronged argument. You have Red, who who just thinks having these people here is ridiculous. 
or, or is confounding. And then you have Olive, who thinks it's the only way you could possibly do it. And then Abuela, who thinks that they're just being weak. Um, and then I throw a joke in. <laughs> Abuela decides to go pee in the woods. Um, again, just trying to make her the Walter Matthau of our, um, you know, violent werewolf um, katana blade comic book. Um, then we basically keep moving on and it's, it's just a tour of the village, just giving a sense of how women outside of the Victorias live in this world, this universe. And it all ends with red coming face to face again with the man who admitted killing her sister. And she basically just ends up confronting him and stating her sister's name. Uh, and we get that face off and that face off is going to be huge. This is going to be what this relationship red and the man that killed her sister is going to be a big part of this entire volume. So we've now gotten that whole story basically done. Um, it, you've got olive turning down the opportunity to go and live in the fortress with red and Abuela, but allowing any of the women who feel unsafe around the men in her village to go if they feel the need to. So then we get into um, Seth. So Seth is one of the four wolves. In the first volume, Seth is like the primary monster that everyone is... Um, he, he's the reason why the men are able to change into werewolves in the first volume is, the, is his hair, when taken from his body and made into a pelt, can turn an average man into a werewolf. And basically allows their primal urges, which often are violent and sexual, to come forward. And this I took from like historical reference. Um, there was a lot of cases in like the you know 1600s of um, men who claimed to be werewolves, people who claimed that after they had sexually attacked or assaulted someone, that it was because they had put on this wolf clothing and it transformed them and they couldn't control themselves like weird early insanity please so seth um in that first arc is chained and captured and basically being experimented on by a group and that's how they're making these pelts he then gets to go free um and he's freed by the victorias primarily by red so now you're caught up <laughs> again by volume one um so he runs he runs he runs he runs he runs and you have him basically stating you know i have been seth the master i have been seth the monster i have been seth the slave but i will always be seth the great wolf of the southern pole again there's these four you know northeast west and south um that the wolves have been pushed to by the goddess Gaia in, in the history, the mythology of this world. And he goes into the cave, and the cave is dark, but he can see some eyes, uh, three of them. And I love what Caitlin does here, is the, the, the other three wolves, um, Bardoff, Lilf, um, and Feral, is are, are angry about the fact that he was, one, made a slave by humans, and two, that he was freed by women. He's made the wolves seem weak. And in a lot of ways, they've kind of come together to not only an exact revenge on the women, but also to kind of punish Seth. His weakness is just something that they won't accept, which I think is something that 
sadly, we see a lot in our, our politics, no matter which side you're on at this point, is that disagreement or weakness is kind of becoming a thing that we just don't accept in other people, that we just immediately attack and try to destroy. And so Caitlin does this great thing where she, she shatters the panel um, where they're basically attacking Seth, but all we get are these like really red, really sharp edges of teeth and eyes and fangs as they just are yelling and weakness is punished. Um, and we end up with Seth on the ground facing up at us, really looking beaten. And their last lines are, don't worry, Seth, your brothers are here to right the wrongs of this ugly world. And I think the, um, the thought behind that is just everyone thinks they're right. <laughs> I, I, I think that's what scares me uh, a lot of the time. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, um, I feel like I've always written because I'm never, I've never been completely sure what I, uh, believe. I have knee jerk reactions, which I think most people do that. You know, if I'm asked a question about like something that is a, um, you know, a lightning rod topic, like, uh, uh, capital punishment, you know, there's a, an immediate response that I'll have that I'll like, I'll be like, I don't believe in that. I think that's completely wrong. And then, um, you know, I, I, I did some work in prisons um, with theater and I would meet, you know, inmates and, and I would, it would make me feel even stronger about like, I can't imagine you killing these people. They're, they're human beings. But then I'd also go out and I would talk to um, the families of the victims. And a lot of times they'd be like, I want justice. Like I want the person who did this to die. And, um, and in a lot of ways, how do you argue with that? If someone's lost a, a son or a brother, um, you know, that it's weird to say that that murder is understandable, but, um, but it is. And so it's a thing that I think I wrestle with all the time is not only that I'm not, I'm not really sure what's right a lot of the time. I'm not really sure and, and, and what's wrong. I mean, in basic cases, you know, right and wrong, like there are some very obvious things like anything that is like destructive to another human being obviously is, is wrong, but there are these kind of moral gray lines. And the more that people try to dictate them to me or anyone else, it it gets scary. And, and of course, then it just makes it clear that everyone believes that they're right, which is, you know, the basis of extremism is the concept of, I am right above everything else and no one else's ideas matter. You can't really disagree with me. I, I have absolute authority. And that ends up becoming a lot of what um, the second arc of Coyotes is about, is who, who is right and wrong? What is justice? Um, how do we forgive? Do we even forgive? Do we believe in that anymore? And I think that's something, <laughs> that's something that, um, man, this is a depressing, this is a heavy one, man. <laughs> but it's, I think it's something I, I think about a lot is... Um, do we as a country believe in forgiveness anymore? And, uh, you know, it, it's weird, right? Because I, I think um, I was writing this while watching a lot of a lot of people, a lot of famous people coming out with um, apologies about any kind of misstep, right? Like any anything like that. And people, and often, you know, the immediate response being, do we think that their apology is authentic or not authentic, and all of that conversation is weird to me. Um, you know, like, like, I don't know. 
I'm as jaded as anybody else. The idea is that a lot of the celebrities I would imagine have like a PR team that's helping them put together their apology. So is there any authenticity in that? Or is there a more authentic PR team apology than another? And what if they don't use a PR team and they're just bad at it, (laughs) but they are really sorry. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think all of these things, um, kind of fuck up my day <laughs> just cause I, I don't know. I think a lot about, about this, about who, who are we and how do we get better? And really just me. I mean, I'm saying we, as if I hang out with you a lot, um, you know, we just sit next to each other reading my comic books, but, um, it's really just me. I think about like, how, how do I get better? How do I become a better person? How do I tone for things I, did or things that I will do and how do I become the person I want to be? Um, how, how do I make the world that I want my son to live in? It's all of that. You know, that's, that's what coyotes volume two is. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. Um, I, I think if you do pick up the book, like I said, Caitlin's art is a revelation. Um, she gets better and better and better. And um, you definitely will get a book that two people have really loved doing. It's been a really enjoyable and crazy ride for both of us. Uh, and thank you to Ben Blacker. And, uh, and I think it's very cool that this exists, this commentary. Not mine specifically, but uh, the idea of the commentaries. <laughs> I, I think as a tool of how to write and make a comic book, they're, um, they're really useful. So uh, thanks a lot. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.